welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're continuing our walk through the, the Gospel of Mark titled Following Jesus. And, and we're looking um, at the Gospel of Mark section by section, learning what it means to be one of Christ's disciples. And as we've talked about, uh, the Gospel of Mark is really good for this, uh, and it's suited for this, because it's a fast-moving, action-packed narrative that focuses not just on what Jesus teaches, but, but also on what he does. In fact, Mark records more miracles than any of the other Gospels. And in light of that, we get to see how Jesus treats other people, how he interacts with, with different types of people, both Jews and Gentiles, both those who follow him and even those who despise him. We get to see how Jesus you know, talks and connects and, and lives and deals with those people. In Mark's Gospel, we get to see a really great picture of what it means to be like Christ. And, and as we've seen so far, Christ is compassionate, right? But at the same time, he's also firm, speaking the truth. Jesus is tender and soft-spoken, but at times he is downright angry and furious, and he lets people know. He's patient, right? But he's also very direct, right? Jesus is very busy and driven to fulfill his mission, but, but yet he still makes time to be in a quiet place for the priorities of things like prayer, with his father. Mark captures for us clearly the characteristics of Christ that we are all called to emulate and to grow into. He helps us to see how we can be more like Jesus. And so this is a great book to help us to learn more about discipleship. All right. But but God, but Mark is also a book that helps us to grow in our theology and in our understanding of who Christ is as God. Because, because the gospel, in this gospel, not only does Mark declare that Jesus is to be the son of the living God, he clearly paints a picture of Christ's sovereignty. Right? We see in this text that Jesus is all-powerful, that Jesus as God is sovereign and in control over everything, including the weather as we've seen. The, he, he's in control of the spiritual forces of darkness. He's in control of, of sickness and disease. He has, he has power over all of creation. Jesus is even sovereign over salvation itself. Jesus Christ, as we see, is the sovereign king, and he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. That's the picture of the gospel that the gospel of Mark paints for us, and that's what we, we understand. But then we run into this text where, where Jesus is asked to heal a blind man, and Jesus lays hands on him initially, but he doesn't completely heal him. The man's vision is restored, but not all the way. He can see, but not all that well. And then he touches him again a second time, and then finally the man is fully healed, 
and, and he can see clearly. And, and for some people, this text right here is enough for them to say, see, Jesus is not completely sovereign over everything. Jesus couldn't heal this man completely the first time. And the reason why he couldn't heal the man the first time is because the man didn't have enough faith in Christ for him to heal him. Because God can't do anything unless we have faith. In fact, I once heard a prominent megachurch pastor say, your lack of faith is what prevents God from working in your life. Because because there's this belief that, that God can't or won't work unless you have faith. That's, that's how you're, right? That, that somehow your faith or your lack of faith limits Almighty God from doing the things that God wants to do, which, by the way, is the foundation of the prosperity gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel ties God's ability to save you and to heal you and to do anything for you in your life, right? And it's tied to your ability to have faith in Him. And in fact, I've heard some people say that God cannot do anything until you give him permission to do so. God can do whatever he wants to do, right? That that God wouldn't violate anyone's free will, all right? Tell that to the people that he gives leprosy to. I didn't think it was their will to get it. That God can't help until he's invited to. That, that, That a person's lack of faith is powerful enough to thwart God's plan. And people say these things, right? And they will point to texts like today's text, and then Mark chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, where it, where it says that Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his house, own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Some people will look at these texts and say, See, right? there's just some things that Jesus can't do. There's just some things that are beyond his power because, because he's limited by, by our faith in him. Well, the problem with that is this understanding of this text doesn't hold up when you examine the context. Right? That's why we always say that, that the context always matters. Every scripture that you read has a context, and every scripture must be understood in that context. Otherwise, you can just take this Bible and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Right? You know, if all you do is take those four verses of this text and you separate them from the context, it would seem that that Jesus encountered a situation where he struggled to heal this man. That it took Jesus twice to heal him. That in essence he failed the first time. And a person could could make a case then that Christ needs this man's faith and this man's permission to help him. If, If you only took those four verses... Out of context, you, you might be able to believe that. It's the same way that a person can say, the Bible says that there is no God. By the way, did you know that that's what the Bible says? Right. Especially if you isolate the text of Psalm 14.1 from its context, because part of Psalm 14 was, does say exactly that very clearly. There is no God. I didn't... Did you know that it literally actually says those words? It makes that statement in the Bible. In fact, the Hebrew, there's no, there's not even any like like any controversy what the Hebrew means. The, the Hebrew is in Elohim, which means literally no God. Or in other words, right, there is no God. No God exists. That's what it's communicating. Right? That is in the Bible. And so 
So by isolating the text from its context, the person can say right, that there's no God because even the Bible says that there is no God. Well, the problem is, as we've said before, that there is a context here. Every scripture has a context. Every scripture must be read and understood in that context. Otherwise, again, you make the Bible say what you want it to say. Context is important, and in this case, we know of three relevant contexts that will help us to understand what was actually written here. First is the historical context, right? The context of history as it relates to the passage. And the context for history here is that this is a psalm written by King David, the first king of Israel. And historically, we know that he wrote this book of psalm for a purpose. And that purpose was to do what? To praise God, to to worship God. This is a collection of songs to worship God, which then presupposes what? The existence of God, right? Right? Which, which logically tells us that it's ridiculous to think that David's going to write a song to glorify God, claiming that there is no God. It doesn't make sense in that context. Secondly, there's a biblical context. What does the whole Bible say? What we have to always understand is every passage of Scripture must be understood in the totality of what Scripture is teaching. Right? How do we understand like, how, that, that there is no God? How does that fit in the wider context of the entire Bible? Because, because what we know is the Bible over and over declares that there is a God and that he does exist. From the very beginning, the very first words, in the beginning, who? God did what? Created everything. From, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the entire Bible is about him. Right? And it talks about his existence, and it talks about his goodness and all that he's done. We're told over and over and over again that God is a living God and that he is real and that he exists. And so in light of that, right, it's foolish to say that God doesn't exist. And then you have what we call the immediate context, which is what is written just before and what was written just after the text. And when you read that, right, it usually gives you a better understanding of what's being communicated in the text. And so let's look at the immediate context here. Psalm 14.1 reads this way. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, heck, that changes everything, right? Suddenly that makes sense. The Bible doesn't say that there's no God, but rather that the fool says that there's no God. The Bible is saying that anyone who says that there is no God is what? A fool. That's a huge difference in the understanding. The context completely clears up what's being talked about here. So a person, right, who says that there is no God or says that the Bible says there is no God is a fool. And, and further, it says that they're corrupt and do abominable deeds. You see, the context immediately clears things up. So context always matters. And it matters for our text today, especially when, when there are those who say that Jesus laying hands on this man twice proves that he isn't completely sovereign and that, that this man's lack of faith thwarted God's sovereign power. So does this passage of text teach that there's something that can limit Christ's power? Right. Or is there something else altogether? Well, let's begin to look at the historical context. Historically speaking, we understand that Christ came in the world for a purpose. And that was what? To save sinners. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy. And as a part of that mission, Christ came preaching the gospel, calling people to repent and believe the gospel. He is calling people to repent and put their faith in him. And we know historically the reason why Christ does miracles then. He does miracles, number one, to point that he is the son of God and to give credibility to his gospel message. 
Right? So, so yes, he healed people right, because he was compassionate and loving, but that was not the primary reason for him to do these miracles. His primary reason to heal people was so they would repent and believe the gospel and put their faith in him and enter the kingdom of heaven and be saved. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. His primary mission was not to cast out demons and heal people's infirmities. His, his primary mission was to save sinners. The, the miracles, the acts of love and compassion were all done to point people to the truth. That's the historical context that we need to keep in mind as we look at this text. Now, the full biblical context, what the Bible actually says about this subject as a whole, has a lot more to say about this. And what we have just seen just in the book of Mark is that Christ has proven himself to be exactly what Mark said he was, the Son of God. And throughout all the Gospels, we understand Christ is, is not some created being, but God in the flesh. Right? In fact, that's the foundation of our faith, that if Christ is not God, right, we worship him in vain. We are doing it wrong. But the scriptures over and over again declare for us, make it clear for us that he is God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Right? Or how about Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic man. We, this is one of my favorite stories. I'm going to tell, tell it over and over again. Right? He heals the paralytic man. I mean, he, this, this guy, his friends bring him. They tear the roof off Peter's house so that he, they can lower him to Jesus. Right? And what does Jesus say to him? He says something they don't expect. Right? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes in the room go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he say? Like, he can't say that. He just blasphemed because only God can forgive sins. They rightly understood that. Only God can forgive sins. Right? And, and what does Jesus say? Which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Jesus clearly has identified himself as God. Not to mention that Christ has proven himself to be sovereign over all things. Remember, he stopped a hurricane-level storm twice. Waves are pitching, the wind is blowing, the, the boat's about to capsize and go under. Everybody's panicking. And Jesus says, peace be still the first time. And the second time, he didn't say anything. It just instant calm. Now, right now. Like, it's chaotic, crazy, to instant calm. Twice he did that. And in, not to mention, he walks on water in the middle of a storm. Walked on water. Right? And then he feeds 9,000 men and all their families in two separate occasions. Right? with a few pieces of flatbread and some sardines, and has you know, an abundance of food left over, proving that he was creating it himself. He cast out a demon from a woman's daughter from a distance without actually even having to go be near her. He raises a little girl from the dead. He heals people in every, of every manner of disease and physical ailment. He casts out demons who themselves fall fr prostrate before Christ in submission to his authority. And over and over again, we see Jesus omnisciently knowing the very thoughts that people think. He knows people's thoughts. The sheer volume of evidence makes it clear that Jesus right, is not somehow limited by the power of anything in the world, much less somebody's faith or lack of faith. That's just a ridiculous proposition. In fact, 
It, to say Christ's power is, is limited by our faith is really an ignorant assertion. The only way that a person can really make that assertion is either to either be legitimately ignorant of what the Bible is actually teaching, or two, to be willfully to ignore what the Bible is actually teaching. Jesus is all-knowing and all-powerful, and as such, he's completely sovereign. So in light of that, then we know that Jesus you know, didn't somehow fail here, to heal this man the first time he touched him, and that Jesus is not being limited by some force that's outside of himself. Right? We can see that. We know that. right? But then if that's true, then, then what does that tell us about this text? Well, it's telling us that Jesus is healing this man in the way that he does. is not an accident. It's, it's on purpose. He healed this man this way for a reason. That's the thing that we need to realize is, is that we have to come to the text understanding that it's, the story's here for a reason. Jesus did this for a reason. You see, he healed this man this way because he's trying to communicate something really important to us. And so what we need to do is we need to look at the context to seek and understand what that is. Now, I'm going to spare you a lot of that work because I have been studying this text out for weeks and weeks and weeks and I believe that there are three possible reasons why Jesus made a point to heal this man in this particular matter. And I'm going to confess right now that I think that all three of these reasons are pretty good. right? In fact, I believe that you can hold on to whichever one of the reasons you want to, or you can actually hold on to all three at once, which is kind of the way I lean. In fact, I think maybe all three of them are probably simultaneously correct. That Jesus did what he did for basically three reasons. And so I'm going to share those with you. Number one... Jesus healed the man this way in order to grow this man's faith. If you remember, right, Jesus' main reason is for doing what he does is what? It's to heal people, not just physically, but spiritually. Jesus' mission is to bring people into the kingdom of heaven and not simply make their lives better right, for just a few years, but to actually transform them into, into the kingdom where they have everlasting life. Which means Jesus not only cared about this man's physical sight, he cared about his spiritual sight as well. He cared about this man's eternity. And he performs this healing in this specific way to deliberately build faith in this man. In fact, if you remember just a few weeks ago in chapter 7, Jesus healed um, a, a deaf man in a very similar manner. Right? He led the man away from the crowd, just like he did the, the blind man. He, he took his fingers and stuck them in the man's ears, and he spat on his finger and touched the man's tongue. right? And he looked up to heaven and said, be open. right? And then he was healed. This is an unusual way to heal him. And as we talked about before, several weeks ago, right? as we went over this text, that Jesus healed him this way, not because he was looking for a novel way to heal him. He did it to give us, first of all, an example of, of what is necessary to reach the lost world. But most importantly, Jesus went through this elaborate procedure so that this man could know and completely understand what has happened to him and what is happening to him so that he would have faith in Christ. This was about building this man's faith. Well, it's the same thing here with the blind man. Right? Notice this man doesn't come asking to be healed. He's led there by his friends. Right? It was his friends who brought him to Jesus, which, by the way, is what friends do. Friends bring their friends to Christ. Right? And they begged him 
to heal him. But notice the blind man, he is, he's silent here. He doesn't say a word, right? He doesn't have anything to say, probably because he doesn't even know what about Jesus, or, or he probably doesn't believe what Jesus can help him. And, and the reason why we can look at that is because contrast his experience to the man named Bartimaeus who's blind that we're going to see in chapter 10. Right? It's a completely different experience. Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road. He hears that Jesus is coming, right? and he begins to holler out to Jesus. In verse 47 it says, And when he heard that, it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. He's calling him by his messianic name. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried all the more. He wouldn't shut up, right? Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, Bartimaeus, as we're going to see in a few weeks, is that he had faith in Christ, but this blind man, he didn't. And that's why Jesus made a point to heal him in this elaborate way. He, he led him away from the crowd, once again, like the deaf man. He used touch Right? and spit, even though he couldn't see the spit, he could hear him spitting, and he knows what spit was. And, and he knew that, that contextually in that culture, that, that if he spat and touched him, that this man would understand what's happening, that this is about healing. Right? And then he opens this man's eyes right, just enough so he can believe. I mean, imagine just you know, what it must have been in that moment. Just when his eyes first began to open. I mean, he existed in this world of darkness for, for heaven knows how long. And then in an instant, he is brought into the light. What a shock that must have been. Right? What an incredible moment that must have been. I remember when last year when we went to Washington and we were you know, hiking through the ape caves. And there was this place where we were in the middle of this place that... Um, that we all just turned off our lights and stood there in the darkness. And I thought, man, this must be what it's like to be, to be blind. Just this pitch black, no light, no sight, nothing. And then I also remembered that when we turned a corner, as we made our way through the caves, that we saw this faint light radiating from the ceiling, this glow that began to get brighter the closer that we, we, that we got to it. And, and the kind of relief I began to feel as I saw that warm, you know, natural light... This, this man's heart must have been pounding when, when the moment the light, you know, the photons of light begin to finally get through his eye and, and hit the back of the receptors of his eye, and he actually begin to see for the first time as he comes out of this world of darkness and into light. Even he couldn't see clearly, he must have had, he must have been awash with emotions. I mean, what an incredible joy-filled moment. You ever watch those videos? Right, like when the, the little kid, um, they put like glasses on the kid that they can barely see. They put glasses on them and they see their mom for the first. How emotional that experience is! It must have been something like that, right? Uh, the moment he first began to see, but then also he. This is the moment he began to believe, right? Because he, because now he knew what they were saying about Jesus was true. He can heal him. Jesus brought him to this point so that he could believe. And, and as the man began to believe, right, you know, Jesus instilled faith in him. And, and, then, and then Jesus touches him a second time and restores his sight completely. And now, not only is this man healed physically, but he's healed spiritually as he moves to faith in Christ. So the first reason is to grow faith in this man. The second reason is to demonstrate God doesn't always do things 
in the same way. God doesn't always work the way that we expect him to. God doesn't always do things the way that we think they ought to be done. Oftentimes God works in really unexpected ways. Notice that it says that some people brought him to brought him brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, why were they begging him to touch him? Because that's exactly what they fully believed needed to happen, right? They believed that that's the way Jesus was going to heal him. They believed either through their experience or through through what they heard from other people talking about that Christ healed people by by touch. That all they needed to do was touch him. That's what they expected. They were fully expecting that to happen. But he didn't do that way, right? In fact, the, he took the man's hand, which was touch. Right? He, he grabbed the man's hand and began to lead him away. He's touching him, but he doesn't immediately heal him, which he could have. I mean, if you remember the story of the woman who just touched the hem of Jesus' garment, just barely made contact with his clothing, and she was healed. And so Jesus grabbing this man's hand was certainly more than enough to, to, to heal him if he wanted to. Right? But the man was not healed in that moment. Instead, Jesus did what? He led him away. Where, where he could actually bring healing in a way that nobody expected. And, and I think this is an important lesson for us because I think as Christians we tend to, to think that our experience is, is normative for everyone else. I think sometimes we think that what happens to us in our own experience with God is, is the normal way that it always happens. And, and we think that our experience is the way that it should be for everyone else. Like when I got saved, my heart changed for sure, and my desire for, for Christ became real, and my conversion right, it was, was, was certainly real, but it wasn't nearly as dramatic as my brother's conversion. My, my brother, like when he put his faith in Christ and repented and believed the gospel, like he was like, from one moment to the next, a different man, visibly. Like he was an addict, a meth addict, one moment, and then he wasn't the next. I mean, it's just inexplicable. His transformation in his life was clear. It was dramatic. Where my life changed a little more subtly and a little bit more slowly. Christ worked differently in my brother Troy's life than he did my own. And it was the same even in my own household. Kim and I both made a profession of faith on the exact same day. And we were baptized in the exact same day. But, but I began to really grow, and I had a hunger for the Word of God and theology, where, where Kim didn't have that same hunger. In fact, she is pretty confident that it wasn't until a few years later, when we lived in Menifee, that she felt that she really then, at that point, committed her life to Christ. God works in our lives differently. And this is so important because I think that we can get really stuck not, you know, not realizing that leading people to Christ is not a, a simple cookie-cutter process. I think that's the reason why so many people don't get involved in, in, in uh, ministry or they don't get involved in evangelism is because they think that it's about learning some cookie-cutter stamp you know, process or system. Right? There, what we need to understand, there's just not one way to reach people. Right? Yes, there's only one gospel message, and that's the way that we reach people. But there's, no, but, there's, but there's not simply one way to get that message to them or for them to hear that message. Because not everyone's going to respond in exactly the same way. And the reason for that is because everyone's unique. We all have different life experiences. We have different personalities. We have different things that have happened to us that make us open or closed. And we need for God to work in different ways in our lives. 
Some people <clears throat> will absolutely listen to a person that comes to their door and they will hear the gospel and they will repent and believe. It will happen on some occasions. Others will come to a church service and, and hear a gospel message and receive Christ. Some people will listen to the preacher on a radio and get saved. In fact, Rick Owen, I was talking to him, he has a, a new member of his church that just got baptized, and this man got saved listening to you know, J. Vernon McGee, the deceased J. Vernon McGee, on the radio. Like That man's ministry is still reaching people. Right? Some people have to go through really difficult crises before they believe. Right? Some people have to lose it all before they will believe. Right? And, and sometimes God uses unusual people and unusual circumstances to help someone believe. It's like my own story. I put my faith in Christ at a Bible study in a stranger's home. Somebody I didn't know. Right? Who, by the way, was a member of the Church of Christ. And, and, what, and what you need to understand about the Church of Christ is they have some peculiar doctrines. Like, they don't worship with instruments at all. None. They just don't believe in it. And they believe that to be saved, you have to get baptized. They believe that, that, that you're not really saved until that baptism happened. That's why they were so quick to get me baptized. Right? Which we know is incorrect. But for some reason, God used that man right, with a theology that's not quite straight and circumstances that were unique to mine and Kim's life to bring me to Christ. As Corey Ten Boom says, God can give a straight blow with a crooked stick. God reaches people in lots of different ways. And so Christ healed this man this way to grow his faith, but then also to demonstrate that he works in different ways in different people's lives. And then the third reason Christ did this, I think, is probably the most important. You see, to fully understand what Jesus is doing here is we need to really get a hold of the full of the, of the context here, and uh, and and now we know I mean, we know a little bit of the historical context as we just talked about. And we know a little bit about the, the the biblical context, you know, the wider context of what the Bible teaches about Christ and Him being sovereign, right? But let's look at the immediate context of what's actually written around here. Now, normally, what we do, we just read a little bit ahead of what what was said and a little bit behind what was said, but actually. I want you to notice that there is a theme in the Gospel of Mark that's been developing you know, throughout this story that we need to keep in view. And, and this theme emerges when Jesus tells the parable of the sower to, to this crowd of people. Now, understand what you might be thinking. And yes, Jesus in the parable of the sower was absolutely bringing to full bloom the theme of his own sovereignty right, over how he changes hearts. Right? Because that's what we saw, we, as we talked about. We know that there are two t- kinds of people in the world. There are people that are in the kingdom and those who are not. There are people who believe and people who don't. And we know that the difference between those people are what? Is what? The condition of their heart. The people who don't believe have a hard heart. The people who do believe have a changed heart. Right? And the difference between them is that. Right? And, and so, so we see this theme here that, that was brought to full view in this parable of sower, a theme of, of, you know, that was developing from the beginning of this gospel. But then at that same time, a new theme begins to emerge in this text. And this theme really begins to speak to all the events that have happened since that moment that Jesus told those parables. And the key, and I don't, I don't want to lose you in the weeds here, but this is so, I mean, if, once you get your head wrapped around this, this will be a beautiful truth for you to hold on to, right? The key to understanding what Jesus is getting at here 
right? It goes all the way back to Mark chapter 4 when his disciples asked him about the parable and Jesus said these words, Do you not understand the parable? How will you understand these parables, he asks. You see, Jesus was getting at their understanding. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you has been given spiritual knowledge. right? But for those outside, everything else is given in parables. Why? Because they have not been given that, that spiritual understanding. right? He says, so that indeed they may, look at this, see and not perceive, and indeed may hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, this new theme that, that, that is being introduced by Jesus is about spiritual understanding. It's about how people understand the spiritual truths being communicated by Christ. It's about understanding who he really is and the nature of the kingdom of God. And he ties this understanding right, to, to the physical world of seeing and hearing. In fact, right, he begins the parable with the words, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. So he literally opens up the parable with the words, listen and see. Right? See the truth of this parable is what he's saying. And then he says, at the end of the parable, he who has ears, let him hear. And again in verse 23 he says, if anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. See, Jesus in chapter 4 is drawing our attention to this theme of spiritual understanding. It's about seeing and not being spiritually blind. It's about hearing and not being spiritually dead to the truth. And then Mark then records two parallel timelines right, to emphasize this theme. All right? Follow along here. Jesus, he goes and feeds 5,000 people as a demonstration of his sovereign power, and his disciples begin to grow in his understanding, but they don't fully understand. He then gets into a conflict with Pharisees who don't get it at all, right? Hypocrites who spiritually are blind, the opposite, right? And don't understand. And then after that, Jesus heals a deaf man, as we talked about, and he heals him in an unusual way, building this man's faith, pointing to Christ's power, but also symbolically demonstrating that Jesus is the one who gives believers the ears to hear spiritual truth. Then, the pattern then repeats itself. What does he do? He goes and he feeds 4,000 people. His disciples are growing in their understanding, but they don't fully get it. Right? He gets into another conflict with the Pharisees, who demonstrate their hearts are completely hard, and they're spiritually blind. I mean, it's on full display. And then, what does Jesus do? He heals a blind man, Right? And he does so in an unusual way, again, symbolizing his power over spiritual blindness. And, and with that as a backdrop, what event happens right before Jesus heals this man? What was the thing that we talked about last week? Right? He tries to talk to his disciples about an important spiritual issue. They don't understand. And what does Jesus say that sets up this entire section? Do you not yet Perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not understand? See, these men have grown for sure, but they still don't fully get it. Their hearts are still partially hard. They're still partially blind. They may be justified, as we talked about, but they still need what? Sanctification, as we talked about. This partial blindness will continue, by the way, Throughout this story. In fact, we're going to see 
After this story, you know, in a couple weeks, Peter is going to display supernatural insight that didn't come from him as he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to say something that obviously he didn't see on his own, that he had to be given by God. Right? And Jesus is going to praise him for that, and then he's going to turn right around and then rebuke Jesus for talking about his death. Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't even know what you're talking about. Your mind is not even set on the things of God. Because he's still not going to be able to see clearly. And this struggle with partial spiritual blindness is going to continue on for the disciples all the way through the rest of the gospel, all the way up to the resurrection, when then finally then they're going to fully be able to see and more clearly be able to understand the truth about who Christ is and, and what he's done in the kingdom. And that church family, that is the context right, of this text. That's the framework through which we need to see this passage. Jesus did what he did to build this man's faith and to demonstrate that, that God doesn't always you know, work as we expect, but he also did this to reveal that Christ is absolutely sovereign over everything, including healing, and not just over salvation, but every part of our salvation. Christ is sovereign over justification. He is sovereign over sanctification. He is in control over our spiritual understanding and sight. Jesus is fully in control. That is what he's communicating here. So with that in mind, now that we've taken all that time to set that up, I'll quickly show you what I mean. Verse 22, he says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. This right here is absolutely a real-life situation. This is an event that happened in history, but it is also a metaphor of mankind's spiritual condition. It's a clear picture of that. On his own, this, you know, on, on, on his own, mankind... All of mankind is spiritually blind. Everybody starts that way. Everybody begins life spiritually blind. Mankind has no capacity to see the truth of God. None. Right? This is the picture of the depravity of man our, our, or our spiritual deadness. He is blind and he is helpless on his own to change his condition. Right? And we see that, that, that some people brought him to Christ. Now, I don't want to press the metaphor too far. But I do think it's interesting that this man's friends brought him to him. Do you know why they brought him? It's because they believed and had faith that Christ could help him. They were convinced that Christ could help him. They knew, like the deaf man's friends and even the paralytic man's friends, that the only hope was Jesus Christ. They brought him knowing that Christ could help. And then verse 23 says, And he took the blind man by the hand, and let him out of the village. Now, I'm telling you what, if there is a sentence in this entire thing that I read and just kind of like overlooked, it's this one. Because it's really easy, because it's a descriptive statement, right? And it kind of gets from point A to point B, but it's really easy to overlook really what's being communicated here. So let's just slow down for a second and, and talk about what, 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 what Mark is getting at. Here this man is who, as we talked about, has no faith, standing there in the darkness, hopeless and helpless. And then suddenly, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, gently reaches up and takes him by the hand. 
And then in that darkness, Jesus begins to lovingly and patiently lead this man away. He leads this man one step at a time. Think about that. He had to help him over rocks, help him around obstacles, supporting him when he started to stumble, letting the man lean on him, leading him, guiding him out of the village to some place private. This is a picture of God's work and salvation. Church family, he's the one that takes hold of us. It's not the other way around. He takes a hold of us and he leads us to a place where he wants us so he can open our eyes. The fact of the matter is, if you're a Christian, you can probably look back over your life right now and you can look at the events that happened before you were saved and you can tell me for sure that you know that God was orchestrating the events of your life to bring you to that place. Just think about the time when you got saved. Looking back at all the years, you can point, God kept me from that. God changed the course of my life there. God led me here. It was finally here that I could finally see him. Most of us have a story like that. In fact, most of you know my own story. I was a successful businessman, living life that I wanted to live, completely happy in my atheism, doing things my own way. But then things changed. I lose my business. I had to move into a, a small house in a bad neighborhood with my family. I had to change careers. right? And all that I was holding on to was beginning to be stripped away out of my life. And life became really hard. But then things... Right? But then things changed, right? Because Kim got pregnant at the worst possible time, by the way. Right? And, 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 and we then make the worst possible choice that people can make. But then God puts me in the right place at the right time to see the sign on the freeway that said it's a child and not a choice. Instantly, my eyes are open. Instantly, my eyes are open. I emerge from the darkness of my atheism and step into the light of the truth that God exists and I desperately needed him. I was beginning to be able to see. Now, could I see everything clearly then? No. I still needed to hear the gospel, but my heart had been changed and my eyes were opening and I walked out of the darkness into the light just like this man. It says, and when he spoke, he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him. He, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, please don't miss the point here, okay? <laughs> A miracle has occurred. Right? This man, though he could not see perfectly, was now standing in the light. This is the picture of, of Christians, especially immature ones. And this is certainly a picture of the apostles at that time right there. Right? Remember, he asked, do you not understand? Do you not see? They could see, just not clearly, just like this man. That's why Christ did what he did. To point to the apostles that their lack of clarity of sight, right? and, and to let them know that, number one, it's not a permanent thing. And number two, that Jesus is fully, 100% in control of all of it. They just need to depend on him. And because of that then, we can be sure, and they can be sure, that what Christ begins, he will finish. And he does that for this man. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, 
And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Now this expression in the Greek that says clearly means that he could see at a distance. That's what it really literally means. It means that he had now 20-20 vision. His, his vision was completely restored. And this right here is a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do for the apostles. Right? He's the one who led them to the place where, they could, where he could open their eyes. And little by little, miracle by miracle, Event by event, sermon after sermon, Jesus is continually softening their hearts and opening their eyes to see. Bringing them greater and greater clarity to finally see the truth about who Jesus is in the kingdom of God. This is a picture of that process for them, but also for us. Because Jesus is the one who leads us to where we need to be. And he's the one who opens our eyes. He's the one who gradually gives us greater and greater clarity of sight because Jesus is fully sovereign over salvation. Now, wrapping up, why is that important to us? Well, I think number one, it's important to us because it helps us to understand you don't have to see everything clearly to be saved. Can I get an amen for that? Right? You don't need to know all the answers. You don't have to be able to explain all the details. You don't have to give a perfect explanation of all the theology. right? You don't even have to have, to have perfect theology to be saved. And I praise the Lord for that. You just simply need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to simply put your faith in Christ. Salvation is likened, as Jesus said, to a new birth. What does that mean? It means you start from the beginning, and then there's a lot of room for growth. It means you go from infant to toddler to child to adolescent on the path to mature manhood, as, as Ephesians says. Number two, it reminds us that our salvation and growth in our walk with God is in his hands and not our own. And though we should absolutely, I want you to hear me on this, we should absolutely practice spiritual disciplines. Right? That's what we're called to. We should practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible reading, meditation, study of the scriptures, right? fellowship with other believers, worship corporately, service to, our, to others in our community, giving and witnessing. We should do those things, but we need to keep in mind that even though we are called to do those things, our salvation is 100% the work of God himself. Both justification and sanctification, which then should cause us to then draw closer to him in dependence and faith. That's what saving faith is, by the way. It's fully, completely, totally depending on Christ. Because the fact of the matter is we've talked about, and we will continue to talk about until Christ come home, is you can't do it on your own. That's why we need to say it again and again. Your faith in Christ is not about you keeping the rules or making yourself a better person so God will love you. You can't do it. Your faith is about, is about and will always be about what Christ has done for you, right? and fully depending upon that, trusting him to be the one to change you. Number three, this should also encourage us to, to be humble and patient. Right? Understanding that this is a work of God. And, and, and the reason why I point that out is because one of the things that Christians often experience when they begin to grow is, is a resistance to, to doctrine and theologies that they don't fully understand. Right? 
not realizing that they still have a lot to learn. Right? And, and, and the result is a tendency to want to push back. Right? Like the idea of the sovereignty of God. There's some people who really, really, really struggle with the truth that God is fully in control. Right? They, they, they really struggle with it, either because God has not fully opened their eyes to it, either because they've not studied it out, or, or for whatever reason, they just don't fully understand it. Right? And, 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 and so they, they struggle, and they push back, and they want to argue, rather than just being patient. By the same token, some people have had their eyes opened, right? and they've grown a lot over the years, and they forget that they too once were blind, and they forget to be gracious, and they grow impatient with those who don't see with, with that kind of clarity. Right? This should help us to see that we need to be patient with those who don't see it as clearly as we do. Understanding that, that the church family is made up of people all along the spectrum of growth. And then finally, number four, this truth here about Christ being in control of this whole process of salvation should move us to worship. Because in our darkness and in our helplessness, God took the initiative to reach out and take hold of us that we didn't deserve it. And to lead us to a place and open our eyes He's the one that brought us into the glorious light of eternal life by his grace. This is a picture of that, and that should move our hearts to deep gratitude and worship of this creator who saw fit to love us. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.